Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Wednesday. I can't believe it's June already. June 1st. We are here live. It is Destination Health Day. Phones are already starting to light up. So if you want to jump in, I would do it quickly. 855 9503835 is the number to join us. We'll get to those calls in just a little bit. So, Lauren, welcome back. Hi, Kevin. Great to be back. Great to have you here. Good. Um, I was going to do a uh, a garden update today, but it's been a busy day so far. the uh, The garden's weird this year. the um, The weather is so strange. The um, it's been a very cold, wet spring like we're still cold and wet yesterday finally got warm it was one of our first warm days in a long time but it's been really cold and wet not a lot of sunshine um i'm about six weeks behind where i was last year on the garden it's that um it's been that drastic this year but finally now uh, uh, things are going great in the in my um, greenhouse my grow room but I, I'm running out of room in there because it's too cold and wet to take anything outside I finally moved them out yesterday um, but I did get uh, do you like asparagus by the way I love asparagus yeah it's one of my favorites too so um, asparagus is such a weird thing to grow I've talked about this but it's just it's kind of fascinating to me so when I first decided, you know, I'm looking at all this stuff that I'm growing and I'm like, Joe, why don't I grow asparagus? I love asparagus. But you almost never hear of people growing asparagus. You know, you go to the garden center in the spring and everybody's excited because all the vegetable plants are out and you buy all the typical stuff and, you know, you throw it in the garden. Some things grow, some don't. But, you know, now I've really been, um, you know, like going a little deeper and like, why doesn't anybody ever talk about growing garlic? There are some things that are just different. You know, people tend to grow the annuals. You buy them in the spring, you throw them in the ground, you get a tomato or two, and you're excited. Um, but I've the, over the last couple of years, I've been playing around with the other things. Like garlic, man, I love growing garlic. I probably, this year, I bet I have 300 garlic plants, um, three or four different varieties. Wow. Yeah, and... Um, Onion. So I grow all my own garlic now. I haven't bought garlic in a couple of years. This year, I think, will be the first time I'll finally plant enough onions. Um, I think I've got about 400 onion plants. So I think I'll have enough wow. onions. Yeah, I know. Well, we think about it, though. Um, you cook a lot. It, don't you put onion in yeah. almost everything? Yeah, I always have to have a red and yes. a sweet onion on hand. <laughs> exactly. That's right. And so, you know, when I first started growing onions, I thought, well, this is awesome, except the onions I grew only lasted me about a month. And I'm like, wow, you really use a lot of onions. I didn't realize that. So we'll see. This year I've got 400 uh, onion plants, and it's split between uh, a red, a sweet, and a Spanish uh, no, I think a red, a sweet, and a white. Um, so garlic and onions taken care of. The one thing I ran out of, and I just ran out recently, and I'm going to make sure I don't run out again next year, um, I made my own fermented hot sauce 
and it was my favorite mm. hot sauce ever. It came out so good, and I just didn't have enough of it. I ran out. So um, this year, I think I'm doing 45 um, pepper plants. So I'm hoping that I'll wow. get a lot of peppers this time so I can make enough sauce to last a year. But the cool thing about asparagus, even though this has been a cold, wet winter, I, I mean, I have almost nothing growing outside yet other than my garlic, and that's carried over from last year. Um, I've planted a couple things. Everything's coming up really slow. But the cool thing is I've been eating fresh asparagus every day for like the last three weeks asparagus comes up in may um and it's a perennial you plant it once and the plants last for 20 or 25 years and the weird oh, wow it, here's here's the other weird thing when you go over to where you plant these and i planted what are called three-year crowns so they plant these things they let them grow for a couple of years then they harvest them and they just ship you this bare root ball. It's all it is. It just looks like dried roots. And you plant that, and then you wait an entire year for it to come up the first time, which was last year. And that would be since it was a three-year crown. This year is, was its fourth year. So what happens this year, there's like nothing there. And then all of a sudden, you see a little asparagus stalk start poking through the ground. And you come back the next day after it started to poke through the next day, it will be six to eight inches tall in 24 hours. What? Yes. No. <laughs> and, and here's what you do. You cut that one because that's what you're going to eat. So six to eight inches, you know, perfect size asparagus stalk. And I've got, I think I planted like 30 crowns because I wasn't sure how much asparagus you get out of these. Cause it's weird. It's just, it just, it's one stalk. It, grows up you cut it eat it when you cut that stalk 24 to 48 hours later that plant's going to put out another one wow and then you cut that one the next day and it will put out another one and so now i have 30 plants and each one is putting out a stalk every day or every other day wow amazing yeah so this root ball how many how many stalks come out of that one root ball that's what I can't figure out because this is the first year I started cutting it. And I have some of them now that, cause you cut one and then somewhere within a couple inches of it, another one's going to come up. I have some of them that probably have put out 10 already this year. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So now if you think about that, if I have 30 of these and they're all putting out 10, that's like 300 stalks of asparagus. That's a lot of asparagus. So I've, <laughs> I've been eating it. Fresh, but you, you only tend to get one each day out of each crown. Okay. So it's... And then have you fermented them yet? I That's what's going to be what I was going to say next. I, there's so much of it. You know, I'm eating it fresh almost every day, but I'm fermenting the rest. The one thing about asparagus, okay. though, especially this asparagus, it's so fresh that you can almost eat it raw 
It's really, really tender. It's not woody or fibrous at all. Um, you can even let the stalks grow really long and still eat the whole stalk. So when you ferment it, I only ferment it for about 48 hours because it starts to get too soft really fast. Okay, got it. Because it's already so tender. So I fermented about 48 hours. I put it in the refrigerator after that. And I think my first jar should be about three weeks old now. Um, I tried it a couple of days ago. It's, it seems to be holding really well in the refrigerator. It doesn't seem to be getting any softer. Oh, good. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite fermented foods is asparagus. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. So it, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's pretty interesting that, you know, early on you've got, you know, food out of the garden. And like I said, those plants will last 20 to 25 years. Amazing. I had no idea it was that simple. Yeah. I, you know, planning it was pretty tough here because you've got to dig this deep trench. You plant them almost, uh, you go down like a foot deep, then you build up a little mound in the center and you kind of lay these crowns and the roots over the mound and then you fill it in and wait. Um, I guess next year now. So the recommendation this year, since I'm on the fourth year for the plant, is I should only cut them for three weeks. This is my last week. I've, I've been eating them for two. So I'll cut the rest of this week, and then you stop. Next year will be the fifth year on that plant, and they basically say it should produce those stalks um, just about every day to every other day for eight weeks. Wow, okay. And then when you planted them initially, the crowns, did you have to do that in May so it was a full first year? Yeah, I did. I did them in the spring. And that's usually when you can buy them is in the spring. But So you're planting them in the spring, but you're not going to get anything until the following year. Got it. Well, I wonder if it's too late for me to do that. It sounds really fun. <laughs> ah, you might want to try it. If you can find some somewhere, check local garden centers and see if you can find some. Throw them in the ground. Yeah, I will. I definitely will. It's funny. It's not one of those things that I typically see when I go to the garden center and I go quite often. That that's what I mean. When you go to the garden center, you see all the typical stuff, you know, peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and pumpkins and squash and zucchini and all that carrots and beets and all those typical vegetables. But then I started thinking, why don't I ever see garlic? Or onions, and then you know, I figured out garlic and onions, and then I thought, well, what about asparagus? It's like my favorite. So there, there's these, you know, like garlic is weird because you really plant garlic in the fall, uh, and I should be harvesting garlic. I don't know if it's going to be late this year because the spring's been so cold. Probably, normally I'm harvesting garlic. <sighs> It should be putting out what they call garlic scapes right now, but it's not. So you plant the garlic in the fall, and it actually sprouts and comes up above ground before winter hits. But then the winter doesn't seem to affect it at all. I mean, it gets snowed on, and you know it, it just goes all winter. And then in the spring, they start growing. My garlic's growing like crazy right now. Then they put out, have you ever had a garlic scape? I was just going to ask you if you eat those. You do. They are like... Uh, Is it they're kind like a green of, onion? Um, it's actually really hard to describe. It. It's actually more like asparagus. 
not not the flavor, but it's you you just chop it up and it's just the green part of the stalk and it's got this really nice mild garlic taste to it. So it's kind of green and fresh tasting with this kind of really light garlic flavor. So you saute them in some butter and olive oil and salt and pepper. And, you know, I, I think it's a thing because you can only get them in the spring. You never find them in stores. I don't think I've ever seen them in a store. Um, you'll find them at farmer's markets. They, they should be hitting the farmer's markets most places of the country uh, within the next couple of weeks. And you'll just see big bunches of scapes. So what happens is the plant will send a new stalk out of the center and you'll notice it looks a little different than the other stalks. And then as it comes out, you see it starts to form into a scape uh, gets a curl to it, and then it's got like a little bulb at the end of it. And once that happens, once that scape curls, then you cut it, and then the plant starts dying. And that's when you can stop watering it, so the garlic starts to dry out. And usually about two weeks after you cut that scape, the plant will be just about dead. And then that's when you harvest your garlic. Wow. Love it. I love that. I love that you've been doing this. How long have you been gardening? Um, so it's kind of funny. You know, I've tried to garden on and off my whole life. And one of the places I lived in Florida for 14 years, I was so frustrated um, trying to garden in Florida. I would try every year. It never went very well. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I was that typical gardener. You know, you get excited in the spring because all the plants are out. So you buy a bunch, you throw them in the ground, the bugs eat everything, you know, you don't know what you're doing. So I really got serious about gardening. This is now my third year. But when I say I got serious about it, I like jumped into the deep end with both feet. Like I read Mm -hmm several books i study this stuff i'm constantly out there working and experimenting with things so i've really uh, i've learned a lot in three years that's pretty cool the other thing that's um, really exciting about this each year gets a little better like i said you know don't buy garlic anymore probably won't be buying onions um I just yesterday started processing the last of my tomatoes from last year's garden. So I probably, I'll be canning, oh, I would venture to say about 30 pints of sauce probably today. Wow. And that's left over from last year's garden. Where did you keep them this whole time? Um, so the, the way that I did this one, I had so many tomatoes from last year. I canned a couple batches of sauce and then I just had so many tomatoes. I got tired of working with them. So what I do when I take the tomatoes off the vine, I like chop them like quarters. I lay them out on sheet pans and I put them in the oven and roast them. And then they kind of break down and then I put them in, um, Ziploc bags and flatten them out. So I probably had like 30 um, gallon Ziploc bags in the freezer. Got it. So now I'm finally, yeah, well, I had so much stuff canned. I was actually running out of room to put canned stuff and I still had some room in the freezer. So I just left the tomatoes in there and then I realized I was getting a little low. 
and I had some room. So like I said, I'll probably be doing like 30 pints or so today. <laughs> You're going to be busy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Two oh. batches. It'll take a couple hours, but uh, yeah. So the, the garden's been interesting this year. Um, one of the other, and, and I guess this is pretty common across the country. We've had some pretty weird weather this spring. I, do the I, I believe it or not I rent bees oh you do that yeah I've heard of that yeah I rent bees for pollinators and I you know you bring in a ton I plant all kinds of wild wildflowers all around the edges and it brings in a lot but mason bees are the specific kind of bee they pollinate way more than honeybees do but I actually rent them they send you the larvae in this little house and spring comes and you put them outside and they hatch and they're, uh, they start doing their thing. They start pollinating. Very cool. So they don't make honey? No, no. And they don't sting. Okay. So it's just to help your garden with all the pollination. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You want as many pollinators okay. as you can. Bees are the big ones and mason bees are, are really the best pollinators. You know, butterflies, hummingbirds, um, all of those things will, will pollinate. And it was interesting last year, you know, the garden was growing good. The plants were big and green. They would get flowers on them, but I wasn't getting a lot of fruit or vegetables or anything. I just the plants were nice and healthy. And then it dawned on me, well, if you get a flower and the flower falls off, the flower never got pollinated. And I, um, Sarah was actually here and I was, we were doing a little tour and she looked around and she said, I don't see many bees. And I said, you know, you're right. I said, I, they don't seem to be showing up this year. And because of that, you might have good healthy plants, but you're not getting a lot of produce because there's nothing pollinating the flowers. So I actually spread a, a, wildflower mix in one big area of the garden and just, you know, threw seed out and all these different flowers come up and it looks pretty wild. And the next thing I knew we had bees everywhere. And once the bees were here, then we started getting produce. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I do a lot of, I said, I rent bees. Um, I buy armies of bugs. I don't use any insecticides, no pesticides, none of that stuff. Um, there are bugs that do that for you. So like if you start to get aphids, which are pretty common, and aphids will just mm -hmm. wipe out your plants, the more aphids you have, the more ladybugs you need. You bring in ladybugs, yep. they will eat all the aphids. And the funny thing is, once the aphids are gone, the ladybugs leave. So there are some years I have to buy them twice. And bring them in because once their food supply is gone, they move on. But then you might get aphids back again later. So, and then I have these little tiny wasps that don't sting. They eat cabbage worms. Oh. Yeah, actually, I don't think they eat them. I think they lay their larvae in the body of the cabbage worm or something. And the larvae eats the worm. But they, whatever it is, you can't even see them. I mean, I thought it might have been a hoax. You buy this little card and it says there's, you know, 5,000 eggs on this card. You can't see anything. And you put it outside in the garden and I still don't see anything. I, I mean, I never see these wasps. I guess they're really, really tiny. But the next thing I know, three or four days, all the cabbage worms are gone. Wow. That's 
impressive. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that. We have a ton of ladybugs in our yard. And I think the aphids really stick around the uh, the milkweed that the monarchs lay their eggs on. Oh, yeah. But I didn't know. Have you seen a ladybug before it becomes a ladybug? No. Oh, well, I was trying to kill what I thought was a pest on the plant, <laughs> and I took a photo. <laughs> <laughs> and I brought it to my plant store and I was like, what are these? They're all over our, um, like a kind of like a daisy plant. Yeah. And I said, I, I can't get rid of them. I started spraying them and he said, well, I spray them. And when I say spray, I use, you know, like neem oil with a little peppermint. So right. nothing, right. nothing really bad. But <laughs> he said, Oh no, that actually will become a ladybug. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, so here I was, it's, it's longer than a ladybug and it's basically like black and orange stripes. Is what oh, I know like. exactly what you're talking about. Those become ladybugs? Oh, those become ladybugs. Yes. Really? <laughs> so if you, if you pay attention to them, they'll start to get, um, they'll start to kind of shrink in length and then you'll see that they eventually become a little round ladybug. Wow. It's really fascinating. It is. And <laughs> ladybugs can eat a lot of aphids. I think you're right because we do, we get aphids, I guess, on the milkweed. And also, I actually, I've seen them on the hibiscus flowers on the, the leaves there. Okay. Okay. And so once yeah. they, they grow and they turn into a ladybug on these daisies bush daisies that we have then i'll find them all over the yard where they're at work on the uh the aphids it's so cool but another thing i noticed when you mentioned wasps i thought of it i think our wasps here i think they're eating the the caterpillars that turn into the monarch butterflies oh really i've seen one latch onto one and i i couldn't stop it nature Oh, Nature, you man. know, it's just I, on and it looked like it was drinking the inside of it. I had an employee when I lived in Orlando, and he got really into this whole butterfly thing, and he wanted to create like a butterfly haven in his backyard. So he started with the mm -hmm. landscaping first. And, you know, in Florida, you can grow anything. I mean, you can just make beautiful landscaping because you know all kinds of crazy exotic stuff grows so he put in this beautiful backyard landscaping and a lot of it was designed to attract butterflies so he mm -hmm. gets that all done that's the first step then he's going to bring in all this larvae that and you know because he's not just going to wait to attract the butterflies that was one way of getting them with all these plants that attract them but he was also going to hatch his own so he bought all these larvae and i don't know how this all works but you know every week he'd come in and he'd show me new pictures and um i came in one day and he right away i could just tell something was wrong and i'm like what happened and he didn't even say anything he just took out his phone and he showed me a picture his backyard was completely bare and it happened in a weekend the the plants that he planted to attract butterflies and and this other stuff well it attracts them because that's what the larvae eat and he bought 
so many larvae and he let them go out there and they literally ate the entire landscape. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. And then after they hatch, they leave because there's no food left. Oh my gosh. That's actually, that's how it is with the monarchs in our yard. They eat the cat. So they'll lay an egg on the leaf of the milkweed and then it'll hatch eventually. And then you see these tiny little, little caterpillars and they will eat. I think they just sit there and eat the like all day and all night. Yes. And it eats and it completely devours the plant. And then Thank goodness, you know, like this morning I went out and I, I cut a bunch of milkweed back because it does, it kills the plant. And so I cut it back, but in the next few weeks it'll, it'll grow again. But I can't imagine if I had a ton of butterflies, it would, yeah, it would decimate <laughs> he, the, he the lost, milkweed. <laughs> he lost the entire landscape. Then he lost all the butterflies too. <laughs> yeah. Poor yeah. Thing. <laughs> I don't see many butterflies around mine. I don't. I don't know why. I've even planted stuff that attracts butterflies. I just don't see a lot of those. I get a ton of hummingbirds and uh, plenty of bees. So we'll uh, we'll see. But a little late this year. I won't get two seasons. Normally, our growing season is so long that I can almost do two full seasons. You know, last year I was planning um, yeah, about six weeks ago. So I'm about six weeks behind, but so this year I'll end up with kind of one long season instead of some years I actually get two two different seasons in. Mm. How long does your season last? You know, most years I can start planting sometime in April, sometimes even early April. Things like peas and cabbage that you know the cold doesn't bother. Uh, I can start planting in mm-hmm. April, and there have been times where I'm still harvesting cabbage in December. Okay, nice. That's yeah, really late. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a really I'm yeah it's a really mild season. You know, most of our summer temperatures are in the 70s, low 80s. Not a lot of humidity. The one thing I have to do a lot of in the summer is I have to water a lot. We just don't get any rain all summer. Got it. So, well, well I, that's, I had, a, that's a pretty good growing season. Yeah, I had no idea we were going to spend a half hour on the garden, but uh, it's health related. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly think it's one of the healthiest things you can do, gardening. I completely agree with you. It's super grounding. You get outside, you get the sunlight, you um, you connect with your food, which is so rare these days. Yeah, and you get the the microbes from the soil, you know, you get them stuck underneath your nails and you can't get it all out. So you ingest a little bit and it's actually good for you. Yep. Yep. Pick the carrot and rub it off on your pants and eat it and eat some of the dirt with it. And yeah, get out there and dig in the dirt and the sunshine. And, you know, my garden is actually pretty labor intensive. I move a lot of material because I use a lot of uh, compost. I use a ton of compost, so I'm always moving, you know, straw and hay and compost and dirt and mulch. And so it's it's pretty physically uh, challenging. You know, you think of gardening and you think, oh, yeah, come on. It's not that much work. Um, it really can be. You start moving a lot of material around. It's a lot of work. I'm just trying to get back into shape again. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of work. It's good. How do you keep your lower back from hurting? I just have to ask. Because every time I go out in the garden, 
I have to stretch extra and sometimes I, I'm leaning over too much. And do you use like a, a seat or are you on your knees? How you know, I, I don't really, I, I've tried garden seats and little carts with seats on them, and I tend to just not use them after a while. So, yeah, I tend to either just be kneeling or bending over. I, I've i never had low back issues ever. Um, I hurt my lower back mm-hmm. one time, and it was a true injury. I, I had a lot of pain, but a week later, the pain was gone, and it's never come back. I mean, I injured it. It healed. I was fine. Um, other than that, I've never had any lower back issues at all. What what um, tend to really get tired on me, like my glutes in the back of my thighs, tend to get really stiff and sore, um, not so much my lower mm-hmm. back. But really, the only thing that um, makes it any better is just the more I do it, the you know easier it gets. Yeah. I think for me, it's more that my hips are really tight and I didn't realize that if I, you know, here I was thinking it was my lower back for so long. It's actually when my hips get tight on my, my lower back. Yes. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And that, Mm -hmm. the gardening that, you know, bending over weeding kind of thing, you know, it's one of those things where if I'm going to do it, I should just get down on my knees and get down in there and do it. It's that bending over, you, you know, you're doing a little bit of weeding, so you don't really want to just jump down and get down in there. So you're just bending over doing it. That's when I'll notice things get really yeah. tight and sore. Mm-hmm. Do you have to weed a lot? I weed on almost a daily basis and I don't have that much of a yard. <laughs> you know, We're weeding all the time. Yeah. You know, in my garden, I do weed constantly it's i i don't like to have to weed a lot all at once so i we every time i see a little weed it gets picked i mean the whole time i'm walking around the garden i'm constantly um weeding things but i'm also learning better ways of keeping weeds down one of the best and i guess i would have thought it would have been the opposite one of the best things i put to cover the ground you can use mulch you can use leaves or grass clippings or whatever and they kind of sort of work okay but a heavy layer of compost around your plants it's awesome for feeding the plant i mean that's the best fertilizer a good heavy layer of compost but seeds don't seem to want to grow in the compost and I would have thought it would be the opposite. It's so rich, and I would have thought seeds would have just taken off in there, but they don't seem to. So I just, you know, every couple of weeks, I just keep putting down, you know, heavy layers of compost all around the plants, and I don't have to weed nearly as much. Cool. I haven't I haven't tried that, but we do we do the mulch, and it, it kind of works. We have certain weeds that, want, you know, coming off of two trees, that these little berries fall and they get, they go through the, oh, yeah. the mulch and it's just nonstop. I can't believe how many times I'll, <laughs> I'll say, you know, I'll do like one day of, of serious like weeding. And then like two days later, there's a, it's you, like, you have it weeds looks like again. I didn't even do it. I know. I know. You know, one of the, um, <laughs> when I have a lot of weeding, like in the spring, I mean, and I just did it over the last couple of weeks. Um, One of the best tools I've found is a big propane torch. Mm, Really? Yeah. So I took a, um, 
oh, I forget, is that a seven pound propane bottle? The typical propane bottle used for a grill. The one you see at the store, you just do the exchange, whatever size that bottle is. I put that on a little dolly, a hand truck strapped it on there. And then you can buy these torch kits and it's a long wand and a big torch at the end of it. So I just, you know, walk around with the hand truck, the dolly, the propane and the torch, and you just torch the weeds. Wow. Okay. I've never heard of that, but it works great. Does it, I mean, it's not just, it's not just burning the top because I have to pull the entire root out. Right. That this kills all the way down through the root. It does. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so the weed is gone immediately yeah. because you just burn up the weed, but it also kills the root. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come back. Okay. Huh. Now be well, careful around. You know, don't don't start your mulch beds on fire. Um, so I, yeah, tend to, right. you know, I tend to try to do that after we've had you know a couple good days of rain, so everything's nice and damp. Or I just you know keep a hose by. But um, yeah, the torch mm-hmm. works pretty darn good. I guess so. There you go. All right. So uh, what's our case study about today? We are talking about leaky gut because, you know, I figured since we did digestion, how it works, when it's functioning properly, and then when it doesn't, um, I think leaky gut is is a good natural thing to go into. And then the case study, um, one of the main complaints is autoimmune disease. So we're going to talk a little bit about how leaky gut can play a role in autoimmune diseases. Got it. So before we start, I just want to explain leaky gut and what it's not. Because I think when people hear this term, they get very confused. You know, they're thinking about digestion. And I think I've had many people assume that leaky gut is kind of another way that we describe disaster pants. You know, we use that phrase, Uh, disaster pants for, you know, brain octane for some people. um, Brain octane will give them disaster pants. Um, That's not what leaky gut is at all. It's not even close. In fact, leaky gut is not a digestive issue that you will even know you have. You know, it's not like bloating or cramping or constipation or diarrhea or you know you have all those things. There are symptoms, you feel them, you know it's happening. You don't know that you have leaky gut. It's not something you feel and it doesn't have really anything to do with your digestion and the way it's working. So it's not, leaky gut is not a symptom. It's not, you won't feel it. So I know that term has confused a lot of people, but the other official term um, is probably even more confusing. It's intestinal permeability. Uh, Most people probably won't understand what that is. So leaky gut works. But what we're describing is we're talking about primarily your small intestine and things being able to leak through the intestine walls and get into your bloodstream where they don't belong. That's really what we're describing here. You don't feel this. You don't even know you have it. There are some ways it can be diagnosed, 
but it's not like, you know, you see or Crohn's where you have symptoms and you feel it and your digestion's not working right. But obviously, um, leaky gut is a big issue. We have over a hundred autoimmune conditions. Now, here's the other thing. There are still a lot of doctors that really don't acknowledge that leaky gut even exists. Mm-hmm. That's true. And we know that it does. And we know it, again, we know it causes autoimmune conditions and the way that it does is, is logical. I'm not sure why the medical community fights back against this. You're finally starting to see some traditional doctors that they understand what it is and that it does exist, but they have no idea how to treat it. Yeah, I I agree. Well, I mean, a lot of the symptoms of leaky gut, basically having leaky gut can lead to other things that have symptoms related to it. So... You're right when you say that a lot of people have it and they don't realize that they do. I'd say most people don't realize that they do. And I think it's a lot more common than, than we, we think. So I agree. I completely agree. And, yeah. and I didn't think about that. I didn't think when you, when people heard leaky gut that they could have thought that it was that they had, you know, they had to run to the bathroom, you know, it was more of a digestive thing like that. But, but you're right. It has, nothing to do with uh, a symptom like running to the bathroom, you know? Yeah. Now I did talk a week or two ago about that. Remember that fake fat or the fat that your body can't absorb the Olestra. Now that did give you something that they called anal leakage. I guess we could call that leaky butt. We could call it that. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be confused with, with leaky gut. There though. you go. That's right. Maybe that'll help people remember. <laughs> you, you don't want leaky butt. Oh. You don't want leaky gut either, but you really don't want leaky butt. Stay away from that Olestra stuff. Um, <laughs> as far as I know, that's it's still on the market and it's still, still legal and they could still sell that too, but uh, I don't think it's very popular. All right. So, leaky gut and uh, it looks like on this case study there's actually a lot going on a lot going on which is great because it really lends to what her symptoms are you know the fact that she has this rheumatoid arthritis and stuff like that um, it's very clear that we have a leaky gut situation going on which is most likely contributing to her autoimmune yeah now she has Rheumatoid arthritis, correct? She does. She's been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Yes. And rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune condition. There are several different forms of arthritis. Um, Rheumatoid arthritis is absolutely an immune condition. Your own immune system is attacking your joints and damaging the joints. That's what causes the pain and the inflammation and ultimately the joint damage. I mean, this will this will do permanent damage to joints. Now, I'm familiar with this. My mother had a RA. I was actually diagnosed with it in my 20s. I was told it was genetic. It's not. Um, there aren't very many genetic diseases. It runs in families like a lot of diseases because families eat the same diet. So almost all of our medical conditions, issues, everything comes back to what we eat. When people eat the same things like families do, 
they tend to get the same results. So um, I was diagnosed in my 20s. I used to get horrible pain in my hands. Um, And I didn't want to take any of the drugs. And really, there wasn't all that much you could do about it. I mean, I would take, you know, Tylenol or something over the counter when the pain got too bad or soak my hands or, you know, whatever I could do and just deal with it. And then the interesting thing was at 50, uh, before I even knew what keto was, the first thing we did was uh, grain-free. And within a week, I think, the, the pain was completely gone. And it really only comes back if I screw up something in my diet. I mean, it, it was that simple and I had had it for a couple decades and you just deal with it and you think, well, this is just, you know, just happens. You get these things, but you really don't. I mean, it, it, I've, I've had that come back twice because my diet wasn't clean enough and I've cleaned it up three times total. So it, it works. Um, but along with that was also a lot of digestive healing. And, and for a long time, we didn't know rheumatoid arthritis was autoimmune. A lot of conditions we didn't know were autoimmune, and now we know that they are. Exactly. And a lot of people are told by their doctors that they can't heal, you know, rheumatoid arthritis specifically or any autoimmune disease. But that's not the case. It can be healed. <laughs> there are a yeah. lot of things that can contribute to it. But you can start with your diet and healing your gut. And most of the time, just that is going to give you huge relief. Yes. So, and that's, you know, we'll get into that. We're, we're going to dive deeper into that today, but I think it's, you know, it's a disservice that a lot of doctors are telling people that they can't heal their autoimmune diseases. Yeah. You know, I think maybe we can explain this in a way that will help somebody better. So, um, RA, I'll just use mine is a, you know, a condition that we can measure. There are markers for rheumatoid arthritis. We can see them when we do some blood work. And when those markers get high enough, and why are they getting that high? Well, ultimately, it's because some foreign body, a protein or undigested food or something is getting through the intestine wall, the leaky gut part, gets into your bloodstream, Your immune system sees it, and it sees it as a foreign invader, and it attacks it. Now, the problem is a lot of those substances and proteins can be very similar to our own cells. So at some point, Mm -hmm. something can get through the, the stomach lining, the gut wall, the, through the small intestine into the bloodstream, our body sees it, says, oop, that's a foreign invader and attacks it. Now, your immune system is wandering around in your body and all of a sudden it sees your joint and it sees a cell in there and it says, oh, look, there's that invader again. But it's not. It's, it's similar. So it attacks the joint because it thinks it's an invader and it starts to do damage to that joint. What we can stop is we can stop the active rheumatoid arthritis. We can stop those proteins from getting into the bloodstream by healing the gut, which is what we're going to talk about. And then that is when the body doesn't see those anymore because we've healed the gut, then the immune system starts to ramp down. And now 
I would make the claim we have cured the rheumatoid arthritis. The markers are gone. I can go test myself right now and I won't have the markers. I know I won't. But what I can't change is any damage that's already been done. And I think that's where doctors are getting confused. They're confusing the disease and the symptoms. We can improve. We can stop the disease and stop the damage. We can't always fix the damage that's already happened. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. It depends on the tissue. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. It attacks the, the, the um, cells in the pancreas so they can't produce insulin. As far as we know, there's no way to reverse that. Once those cells have been damaged, we can't get them back. That doesn't mean we can't stop what was causing the problem, but we can't fix some problems that have already occurred. That's a good point, Kevin. So basically, if you ask me, then I would say that the quicker you get on this problem of your immune system destroying the cells in your body that, you know, are important to your overall health, then the better off you'll be. Absolutely. Because if it's doing damage, then, you know, and it's irrevocable, then let's get on it. Let's fix it. Yes, absolutely. So fixing it stops any further damage because at some point you'll do enough damage. You can't get that function back. You know, in the case of type one, that's one of our more severe I mean, being a type 1 diabetic is not a good thing. It, no matter how, how good we are with diet and everything else, you are going to suffer consequences as a type 1 diabetic. And once, once that happens, we can't, as far as we know now, there's no way to get that function back. So you're right. It's, identify that you've got this problem. Let's work on gut healing first because that's really what stops this from from continuing. Um, so what kind of things um, do we want to talk about on gut healing? Well, I, I also want to say that it's not, you know, we're going to start with um, with healing the gut. That's where we start as a, from a functional, you know, perspective is that usually the issue is a leaky gut, you know, syndrome. Um, so we are going to absolutely talk about that. But there are other things, you know, so, so things that cause autoimmunity are, um, like, uh, environmental contaminants. So if you do heal the gut, then you want to look and, and if you still have an issue, then you want to look at things like heavy metals, pesticides, mold, you know, things like that. There are other things that can go on where your immune system is overactive and it's trying to com- combat, combat things and it never gets to turn off. So it's, start to also, you know, attack your body. So I just want to mention that where, you know, food and leaky gut is usually, you know, where we want to start for sure. But and it's usually the problem, you know, once you do fix that, then, and if you do still have symptoms, then, then you want to take the next step. So just wanted to mention that, um, other things, you know, like, uh, dysbiosis, um, of the of the gut bacteria, viral infections. Um, it's also been linked to um, Lyme disease. Um, overconsumption of alcohol, they say, can also contribute. Um, and stress. Stress is 
you know, another thing. Some of these things all have to do with diet. I realize um, we know that stress, chronic stress, you know, pulls the blood supply from the digestive system um, so it doesn't function properly. So, you know, um, but for the most part, leaky gut is usually where you want to start. So should we talk more about leaky gut, Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, continue down that path. So obviously the first thing, and we just say it all the time, we, we, before anything is going to get fixed, we have to get somebody on some sort of a paleo-based diet. I mean, that that's our number one belief. In fact, we really don't want to work with people unless you're willing to do that because that's our main tool. So once you've moved to some sort of a paleo-based diet, and, you know, I almost hate to say this, but technically a lot of the people we work with are on what we've kind of come to call dirty keto and dirty mm-hmm. keto is not paleo it works it you know if your number one problem is weight and blood sugar dirty keto works but it's not a paleo based diet we're eating a lot of things on a dirty keto diet that would never be considered paleo so sometimes you know we might be working with somebody and they're losing weight and they're getting their blood sugar under control but on a dirty keto diet, we or you could even do dirty carnivore as well. Um, we still see some of these other problems that won't go away. And sometimes that just comes down to pure food quality. Um, some, you know, in the beginning, I talked about my open today. I talked about the three big areas where we see health problems. One, metabolic, all the metabolic issues. Two, autoimmune, which we're talking about now. And digestive um, that's a paleo kind of thing. So like I said, you could still be eating foods on, on a dirty keto or dirty carnivore diet that would really still interfere with your digestion and could cause your autoimmune conditions to flare as well. So this is really mm-hmm. a food quality. Once, so we've got to get somebody on some sort of a paleo-based diet. That's step number one. And then this is almost always an area where we're going to use supplements and other things. Uh, we have some great supplements. We have some great kits. Also, the one thing we probably don't say enough, I'm drinking some right now, bone broth is awesome for healing the gut. Oh, yeah, definitely. So you should be drinking bone broth every day. The other thing you should be doing is cooking. I use a ton of bone broth when I cook. For one... You can make a soup in about 45 minutes that tastes like you worked on it all day by using bone broth mm-hmm. as the base. So the Lona Life bone broth, my pantry's always loaded with it. Um, anything I make like a soup, a stew, a chili, anything like that gets bone broth instead of water. I do still eat a little bit of white rice every week. When I make my white rice, I make it with bone broth, not just water. So when I can, all the meat that I can, that every jar gets topped off with bone broth. So you should really be working to get that bone broth into your diet. It's one of the, the, the best um, tools we have for healing the gut. Yeah, definitely. So we know that poor diet leads to leaky gut. So inflammatory foods and food allergens, so... If you're sensitive to certain things that people 
don't really know that they're sensitive to. That's why we, we like to promote uh, kind of an elimination approach to start for this kind of thing. So you eliminate all the things that could potentially be causing the issue. Um, so grains, added sugar, GMO foods, refined oils and seed oils, um, synthetic food additives, dairy needs to be removed in the beginning to see if you're reactive to it because you just don't know until you remove it. So th- those are kind of some, some ideas of things that need to come out of the diet. And then I wanted to mention artificial sweeteners because I see that a lot when I'm on the discovery calls is, you know, I'll be working with someone who has diabetes and they think that they're doing great by using an artificial sweetener. But in reality, if you have a leaky gut situation, you're really doing a lot of harm. Good point. So, um, and some of these, you know, and it's, I'm not sure how many, but let's just talk about saccharin, sucralose, and aspartame. We know that it they can, number one, they can raise your blood sugar. A lot of people think that they're doing better with that, but you can actually raise your blood sugar by, by using those. They cause inflammation in your digestive tract, um, which can lead to the permeability of your small intestines leaking food out into the bloodstream, causing leaky gut. And they can also change the bacteria in, you know, in your microbiome. And the bacteria in your microbiome is really important for the health of your, you know, of your gut, your, um, your, you know, your immune response, because 80% of your immune system they found is located in your gut. So all of these things, and there was a study that they did where they followed, um, this is after a lot of studies done on, on rats and whatnot. They wanted to, you know, kind of see what would happen if they followed seven people who didn't eat, um, foods that contain artificial sweeteners. And within, I think it was like the first, I think it was like the second day they already noticed a change in the microbiome. Wow. Um, that L rudery, that L rudery bacteria was, you know, was down um, you know, some of the good bacteria was, was less and some of the bad bacteria was increased. So we don't think about that kind of stuff, but we're feeding our microbiome whenever we eat and we want to make sure that we're feeding it the right thing. Cause if the bad bacteria wins over, you're going to have a really hard, uncomfortable time. Good point. So. You know, I want to go back to something you said. You listed a whole bunch of things that can, you know, um, lead to leaky gut and things we want to avoid. And, you know, you just mentioned artificial sweeteners. Now, we need to know what they are. We need to know how to look for them on a label. Um, Mm. But you also mentioned another food. And this food has a problem. You mentioned GMO foods. How do I know if I'm eating a GMO food? Oh, that's a good question. The, the, where I would start is the things that we know are mostly going to be GMOs, like corn, soy. Those are going to be mostly ge- you know, genetically modified. And do we know what genetically modified means? Uh, do we know that? Yeah, there. I can explain Go it ahead. in general. But you, okay, I'd but- love to. Yeah, so, and this is a good topic because a lot of people get confused in this. And I'll tell you, 
who gets the most confused are people with agriculture background. You would think they would know this and it's the opposite. They, they get this wrong almost every time. I've had people call and scream at me. You don't know what you're talking about there. We've been doing this forever. There's nothing wrong with this. And what they're confusing, and I know right away, they're confusing genetically modified with hybridized or cross-pollination or, you know, we can manipulate plants ourselves with through cross-pollinization and, and other things like that. And that happens in nature all the time. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that process. When this apple tree is growing next to this apple tree and they're two different varieties, you could ultimately end up with a third variety that cross-pollinated from the other two. That's how we have 600 varieties of apples. And then we can do that as human beings. We can manipulate that process, make it happen a lot faster. And we can create foods that have characteristics. We can create apples that are crazy sweet. Now, we do that through selective breeding or hybridization or cross-pollinization. You know, if you, if you grow two apple trees and one of them's really sweet and the other one's not so sweet, well, then you take the seeds just from this apple tree, the really sweet one, and you grow those again. And even individual apples, if one apple is really sweet, then you use those seeds. Ultimately, we can create you know, new varieties and everything. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Other than you should realize that some of our fruit has been cross-pollinated and hybridized and selective bred for so long that it's, it's got as much sugar as candy does now. Now, that's a problem, but I, I'm not worried about how we did it. That's a natural process. Genetically modified is absolutely not natural and doesn't ever happen in nature. In genetic modification, we are physically splicing genes out of some other organism and splicing them into this organism. And it's not always plant and plant. We, we take genes out of animals and splice them into plants to create genetically modified. Yeah. Genetically well, modified is very, thing. very different. We are messing with the, the code of life and we have no idea what the results might be of that. Well, also when you have a GMO that, so they can actually put like a pesticide within this genetically modified, you know, crop. Yes. So for instance, um, they can put pesticides and, and different things in there that will basically when an, when a pest of some sort eats it, it can implode their stomach. Yes. So it's breaking down the barrier of their stomach, which is going to end up killing them. So if it's doing that on that, such a, a small scale for an insect, Imagine if it's doing it, you know, like that, and you're constantly eating these GMOs, and you're eating the same exact thing that this insect is eating. It, it can't be doing good for you. There's no way. No, no. It, and it, here we are talking about leaky gut. Yeah. And inflammation is one of the main problems with leaky gut. 
So if you're eating something that's going to irritate your intestines, it's going to cause inflammation and it's going to cause it to be permeable. And my original question, how do we know if we're eating a GMO food was kind of tongue in cheek because Mm -hmm. I know the answer. The answer is you can't know because we don't require it to be labeled. Yeah. The only thing is when people put non-GMO on there, but I mean, that doesn't really mean much. (laughs) No, there are a couple clues and we can go by them. I like yours. Stay away from the things that we know are heavily uh, genetically modified. And they're foods we shouldn't be eating anyway. Corn, one of the worst. Over 90% of the corn in the U.S. is genetically modified. We shouldn't be eating corn anyway, so skip all the corn. Uh, Soy, very heavily genetically modified. Those are the two big ones. We shouldn't be eating soy uh, anyway because it messes with your hormones in a really bad way. So stay away from Mm -hmm. corn and soy and you've eliminated a lot. But there are apples that are genetically modified uh, and they are not required to be labeled. So the best you can do, stay away from the big ones. Um, if, If something is labeled organic, it can't be genetically modified. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. So if it says organic, it cannot be genetically modified. So when it comes to produce, stick with organic, stay away from corn and soy. And otherwise you would have to just follow the source back till you figured it out yourself. Exactly. So, Poor diet, things that can cause leaky gut. Those things are going to be at the very, very top. GMOs, refined oils as well, people don't realize they're they're rancid. Before you even buy it from the store and open up that bottle of canola or vegetable oil, it is already bad for you. So, And it's in plastic, and we talked about how NCT oil can melt your plastic. Well, I don't know why any oil is in plastic. I'm sorry, but if MCT oil is doing at a fast rate, I can only imagine that any kind of, you know, oils would be breaking down the plastic and mixing into the oil. Yeah. Wouldn't you think so? Yeah. We we should try to keep plastic as far away from our food as possible. You know, I I switched from (laughs) all plastic, you know, kind of food storage containers to all glass. Um, we've tried to eliminate plat. Two things I've tried to eliminate that are very, very common around food: plastic and uh, foil, aluminum. Yeah, every time you do, uh, yeah, every time I look at a heavy metal test on anybody, aluminum is through the roof. We cook in aluminum, we wrap things in aluminum. So now if I do use foil and I don't use it hardly ever anymore, I always put part put parchment paper in between the foil and my food. Mm, that's smart. Yeah, uh, the, the heat breaks it down and, and it's bleaching into your food. So don't cook with, you know, aluminum for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the plastic is hard though, Kevin. That's hard to get away from. It all is. the cheese is wrapped in plastic. I know. All your vegetables I mean everything is wrapped in plastic. I know. And you're right. We we get all kinds of liquids in plastic bottles now. Ugh. Oh, I just cringe every time I open up someone's cabinet and there's I know. a vegetable oil plastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Oh. One thing I could do I would just in someone's house, I would just get rid of all of that. I just don't even know why 
why it even exists anymore. Yeah. So anyways, um, poor diet. Uh, those are some things in the diet that can lead to leaky gut. And then you've got digestive dysfunction that can lead to leaky gut, which we've been talking about the past few shows and how digestion works and how, you know, the dysfunction can lead to, to different, you know, different problems. Um, not being able to absorb nutrients in your food. And in our case study today, um, one of the things that really jumped out, which I'm not going to get into that whole thing yet, but was uh, gallbladder removal. So gallbladder plays a vital role in, you know, breaking down your fat. When it's not there, you know, you're producing that bile still is being produced and it's at a slow trickle. It's like dripping constantly and it's going into your intestines. So it's going, it's going to be irritating that top portion of your small intestines. And if you can imagine, it's going to be deteriorating it and eating away at it, causing inflammation and gut. And we didn't, we didn't really get into, um, you know, leaky gut in terms of how, what is exactly going on in the small intestine and when that is occurring. So the intestines are protected by a really thin layer of epithelial cells and they're tight. They're really, you know, positioned really tightly together, which causes um, what they call a tight junction. And these cells are what controls what passes through you know, the, you know, the intestine into the bloodstream. So by the time your food makes it to your small intestine, you know, if you, if you didn't, you know, hear the last couple episodes about digestion, go back and listen to it because, you know, if you did listen to it, you'll realize by the time everything gets to your small intestine, the role is absorption. It's supposed to already be broken down. So if it's not broken down and it's making it to your small intestine, it's going to start irritating your small intestine because it's not going to be broken down anymore. And the small intestine is really, really long. And it's the whole, you know, the whole reason it, you know, it's so long and it takes so long to go through that area is for absorption. So if undigested food particles make it through that barrier, that's when our immune system goes on alert and it starts sending out, you know, you know, basically like a little, you know, little soldiers to go and remove these undigested particles. And then that's when it starts getting trapped, you know, it's triggered, it's on, your your immune response is on, and it doesn't really go back off because you're you're eating. Every time you eat, you're going to have that same trigger. So I just wanted to, um, to kind of mention that digestive function is, is really important. Making sure your digestion is working properly. Um, will definitely help you avoid um, leaky gut. And here's the thing we know. Uh, virtually everybody eating the standard American diet is going to have some sort of digestive issue. It's almost impossible not to. It's true. Very true. I mean, yes, when you look at processed food, the ingredient list alone, there's so much in there that shouldn't be in there. And it's going to cause inflammation. It's going to cause, you know, your your intestines to be inflamed, which is going to lead to to leaky gut. So, yes, stress. We talked about stress that as well. Chronic stress. That's always. And it's funny because 
my whole life, you know, I hear about stress and how it's bad for you, but you don't really realize how it's bad for you until, you know, I didn't realize it until I started studying nutrition and how it relates to everything, um, especially digestion and how it, it can impair digestion. So we definitely want to mention the chronic stress. That's a really good point that, um, you know, we, we've heard about stress all our life, but nobody ever explained what it did. We know it's bad, but no. I, nobody's ever explained why it's bad. What is it actually doing that's so bad? I mean, I, you know, we hear about people who have nervous breakdowns. I've never even understood what that really means. But it, it the reason, one of the reasons stress is bad for us is because what you just said, one of the first things it does is shut down um, digestion. Well, that's bad. You're going mm-hmm. to create digestive issues if you keep shutting down your digestion because you're stressed all the time. And we talked about how, yeah, as Americans, we eat on the run. We don't eat in the rest and digest mode. And, and that, you know, it's going to start causing damage to our digestive system. You know, the real surprise is that any of us are still alive at 50. I mean, the body's a pretty incredible thing, but um, we just have to stop abusing it so much. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But then toxic overload, you know, we talked about processed food and all the, you know, there's a ton of chemical additives and preservatives in there. So the toxin overload is a big one too. Um, pesticides, tap water, the chlorine and the fluoride in tap water. Um Drugs, prescription, and over-the-counter, especially, um, you know, like aspirin and NSAIDs and stuff like that, Um, and antibiotics. That'll wipe out your good bacteria, and we talked about how important that good bacteria is for, you know, the health of your your immune system. So, um, toxins in general. Medications played a big part in our um, case study, didn't they? Yes, they did. They did a lot, actually. I can't wait to jump into that because she has a perfect storm going on. It's it's a perfect case study for this. I I can't wait to go over that. Well, let's Um, jump into that. So basically, yeah, I was going to say, you know, we can jump into that and then we can talk about testing and treatment for leaky gut once we've jumped into the case study for today. Sound good? Yes, let's do that. All right, so our case study today is a 57-year-old woman. Her main concerns are rheumatoid arthritis, type 2 diabetes, and um, weight control. So um, apparently she's having issues keeping the weight off and gaining muscle weight over fat, which I thought was was interesting. Um, so some food findings. She has been gluten-free um, no white potatoes and no MSG. Uh, breakfast is either scrambled eggs with a bulletproof coffee, which is a great breakfast, by the way, or muscle milk, which Ooh. is not a good breakfast. Ooh. No, 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 no. Uh, have you ever looked yeah. at the ingredient list on that stuff? You know, I did the other day and I forgot what it was. Do you recall? Oh, it's awful. I mean, it, it probably take me 15 minutes to read it all. Oh, well, yeah. So muscle milk, it, 
I, I take it that's kind of like a protein supplement to help bulk up your muscle. I don't know. What is it? it? It's basically a protein supplement. Yeah, it's a, a bodybuilding, um, weightlifting kind of supplement. Um, let me just go see if I can find. Well, I do know that it contains two artificial sweeteners, at least, that are known to interact with gut bacteria, promote weight gain, and insulin resistance. And basically, that those things contribute to all three of her concerns, rheumatoid arthritis, type 2 diabetes, and her weight gain. So, I mean, eliminating that is going to be one of my top recommendations because it's, you know, why not just stick with the scrambled eggs and Exactly. No, in a bulletproof coffee. That sounds, that sounds great. Real food. There's nothing in an egg except egg. There's no ingredient list. Uh, NDK coffee. We put some butter, some coconut oil, just real stuff. But I, I'm just going to read this list of ingredients. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I want you to listen for real food. See how much real food you can find in this. Uh, calcium and sodium caseinate, whey protein isolates and or other concentrate, milk protein isolates and or other concentrates, whey peptides, L-glutamine, taurine, lactoferrin, maltodextrin, sunflower oil, uh, MCT, canola mm-hmm. oil, soluble corn fiber, L-carnitine, alkalized cocoa powder, natural and artificial flavors, vitamin mineral blend, fructo oligosaccharides, crystalline fructose, potassium iodide, potassium chloride, cellulose gum, salt, uh, asulfame potassium, xanthan gum, carrageenan, sucralose, and soy lecithin. How's that sound for breakfast? The gum. Talk about more inflammation. The gum. That sounds like an, a gut buster right there. <laughs> muscle milk. If anyone wants leaky gut in a hurry, drink muscle milk. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I mean, man. What a bunch of garbage. So many things in there. Yeah. <laughs> so we should mention the gums. Those, those gums, those like, I mean, they're preservatives and thickeners, right? Right. Those gums are very irritating for your gut lining. Okay, yes. those will cause inflammation. Inflammation is, you know, linked to leaky gut as well as pretty much every single disease that you can imagine. So, yeah, muscle milk. Let's let's get off the muscle milk. Yes. yes. Um. So, in terms of the rest of her her diet, not too bad. Um, salmon, cottage cheese. An avocado, meat, veggies, salads. Um, the the drink. She did mention that she drinks diet coke. So more artificial sweeteners right there. Oh boy. Um. Yeah. So, I mean, I, by the end of this, we can have a tally of all of the things that are going against her rheumatoid arthritis. So far, we've got muscle milk and diet coke as some serious ones. Yes. Um. And I, you know, then her nutrition findings. Um, nothing that I'm really surprised about, uh, upper GI could use a little bit of help, um, her liver and gallbladder because she does not have a gallbladder, but she has been taking beta plus and it's actually, it's working for her because her liver gallbladder was not in, um, a critical place. If I can recall correctly. Good. Um, 
So she definitely wants to stay on that, on that beta plus, uh, the bile salt supplement. And then her small intestines were, were in the high priority range. Not surprising because her small intestines are inflamed and causing leaky gut and stuff like that. So that's that. Um, and then, you know, her sugar handling could use a little bit of help. She definitely is deficient in minerals and stuff like that. So we um, will move on to her medication and supplement list. Okay. And this is where it gets super interesting, but um, she's on Humira for her rheumatoid arthritis, which not surprised there that she's on something. Um, Kevin, are these rheumatoid arthritis, these um, medications, I'm assuming like kind of weaken your immune system, right? Because it's overactive and they don't want it continue to destroy so this is a group of drugs called biologics and there's a whole bunch of them um they're prescribed for autoimmune conditions and they all kind of do the same thing they turn down your immune system so this is a really bad idea it's like saying um dm the smoke detector in my house keeps going off so i'm just going to tear out my smoke detector wait a minute, it keeps going yeah. out because your house is on fire. You know, that's, it's, it's, you know, the, the same idea here. Um, it's just a really, really bad way to approach this. Yeah, exactly. So we want to remove the, you know, what's causing the issue. So, and we'll get into the healing and everything, but, but yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So that, and then, okay, so that is the biologics. And then she's also on a corticosteroid, which is a steroid drug that weakens the immune system. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting when I really dove into this medication that she's on is it raises your blood pressure. It can cause weight gain with fat deposits in your abdomen, face, and back of the neck. I didn't realize that could be that specific, but it is. Um, Upset stomach, osteoporosis, cataracts, fungal infections. um, These are all side effects that are associated with this corticosteroid that she's taking. So just to to know, you know, sometimes you take medications that can cause other issues, you know, to, to kind of come about. So the next medication she's on is a blood pressure medication. And I'm wondering if perhaps she's on that and her blood pressure, you know, started rising when she started this, um, this other medication, the the corticosteroid. So you have to, you know, when you're on medications, you have to look at the side effects and really weigh whether or not you think it's worth it. Um, or else you can be, you know, you know, honestly, today's drugs, when you, see the side effects i'm not sure that anybody would take any drug if they actually read those things Mm, i know it sounds awful well yeah yeah they yeah yeah they do and and they're awful i you know i i've said this many times it used to be side effects were headache nausea tiredness that kind of thing you know can't sleep whatever now it's cancer suicide death uh, body parts fall off. I mean, it, seriously, the side effects are worse than the disease. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. 
so yeah, so now she's on a blood pressure medication. Um, and the most notable, this is where I got really concerned because she's on these over the counter pain medications. Did you see how many she's taking daily? No. She's taking eight, eight Aleve, six aspirin, and four Motrin a day. Wow. So what is this for her arthritis pain? Yes. So obviously her Cumera isn't working. Exactly. So, but, okay, so let's just explain to everyone real quick. Sometimes you can get caught in a vicious cycle, okay? What contributed to her rheumatoid arthritis um, was most likely the leaky gut. Then she's kind of like trying to mask the, the pain that, that, you know, that she has from this rheumatoid arthritis. So she's taking pain medications that are causing more <laughs> gut permeability and inflammation. Yeah. So it's a vicious circle. She'll never get away from this problem until she starts to eliminate all of these things. But I've never seen someone, I've never heard of anyone taking that amount of pain medication. Eight Aleve, six aspirin, and four Motrin. Wow. A day. Wow. You know, we we, I mean, we have this mindset that we can walk into a store and buy it. It must be safe. Yeah, it's true. And it's well, not. it's not, guys. It's right. not safe. It's not. Yeah, it's not. It's, so, it's really exacerbating the problem here. Absolutely. So real quick rundown of the things that are seriously contributing to this leaky gut syndrome. We have muscle milk. Diet Coke, um, and then these pain medications. Those in and of themselves, the pain medications, are going to deteriorate your small intestine. You know, so, something else that those, might be interesting, and, and you could absolutely do it here because she has a, basically a set amount she's taking every day. I wonder what that costs a year. Well, that's a good question. I'll bet it's a lot. Yeah. And she's been doing this for eight years. She's wow. been taking that much. Wow. I know. Thank goodness the epithelial cells can grow back very, very quickly. Yes. Because, you know, once she starts to eliminate, and that's the thing, this isn't something that's going to take forever to fix. This is, this is a relatively quick, you know, fix. You know, once you've committed to the elimination of these, these things that can be, that are contributing to it, um, and then you're supplementing properly because we, we definitely want to get in a ton of anti-inflammatories in the diet, um, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. But, you know, you know, the fact that she doesn't have a, a gallbladder, you know, she's supplementing now with bile salts to help break down, you know, her fats. That's going to help her digestion a lot. Um, but all of these things, um, you know, we need to remove these things from, from her diet and really get some good healing foods and supplements in there to help, you know, fix this problem. So recommendation-wise, um, nutrient-dense keto with a lot of omega-3s, like good amounts of um, salmon, 
um, you know, wild salmon. Um, you mentioned mackerel and anchovies that we carry in the store now from Patagonia Provisions. All those are good and high in omega-3s, which are anti-inflammatory fats and really, really important. Um, being, uh, you know, what, what, especially with uh, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, we, we see a lot of people healing themselves with just eliminating the things that are causing it, the leaky gut, and really increasing the amount of omega-3. If you're doing that, you're going to notice, you're going to notice a difference. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Have you tried the Patagonia foods yet? I have not yet. Oh. You know, actually, when COVID started, I, I did order a ton of Patagonia provision foods. So I have tried some of them, but um, I actually have to go by the mailbox. I have a feeling there might be some there. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Yeah, we got to get you some. The, the, yeah. Their seafood is incredible. I can't wait to try the anchovies because... I think you're right about the anchovies in terms of them being slightly less fishy, especially if you add lemon to them. Yeah, the the lemon that they do is amazing. And like I said, mix in a little hot sauce, a little kimchi, eat that with some crackers. What a what a great meal. I may have that for lunch today. I was just thinking that. I haven't had lunch, so that yeah. sounds really good. <laughs> yeah, I think that's lunch. So, yeah, so... Yeah, so nutrient-dense keto, really increasing the amount of omega-3 fatty acids for anti-inflammation. Um, good, important to, um, to eat the fermented foods to help reestablish a good, healthy gut microbiome. Um, and then for her specifically, digestive support. So she needs some, you know, some help with her um, upper GI. So I'm recommending hydrozyme to help break down our proteins better. Um, beta plus to stay on that because it's working. It seems to be working since um, she doesn't have a gallbladder. So to help break down her fats, the bile salts in that. And then a good probiotic. Um, the ferments are not going to be enough. We want to start increasing the amount of good, healthy bacteria in there. And then the fermented foods are actually going to feed the good, healthy bacteria to keep them, you know, to keep them producing. So, we want to make sure um, she gets on some probiotics. And then uh, I also recommended the anti-inflammatory protocol. So that is a great protocol. If you haven't seen it, you can go to the Let's Truck website. Um, it's great. You know, we in, in that, that list uh, is um, the Biomega 1000, which is very high in omega-3 fatty acids. The Curcumin RX, which is a great way to get anti-inflammatory um, properties of curcumin, uh, which you mentioned, I think last week that that's found in um, what's it called? Turmeric is what it is. Yes. Um, bio D the bio D emulsion, um, vitamin D really, really important to help support a healthy immune system. Okay. A lot of people are deficient in vitamin D. Um, I think that has really, come into light with um, COVID the past couple years as well. A lot of people were acknowledging that vitamin, that, you know, that people that were getting really, really sick were low in vitamin D. Um, so we want to make sure that, you know, you're getting a good amount of vitamin D with summer, right. You know, around the corner, it shouldn't be that hard to get it naturally. If you spend enough time outside without sunscreen. So um, 
earlier, you know, in the day or later in the day, obviously you don't want to get burned. That's not exactly good either, but, um, a good healthy amount of vitamin D. So, you know, I recommend getting, you know, your labs and seeing what, where your vitamin D is, because I think you'd be surprised a lot more people are deficient. Um, and then the berberine HDL is also on there, um, to help support normal glucose levels and, um, I think it also helps boost the, the immune system as well. So, yeah, you know the one. the vitamin D thing. Every single person I've ever tested that wasn't supplementing was low, hundred percent. Wow, I'm I'm not surprised. It's you know it really came to light during COVID, like I said, but it's been known for for a long time now, for years now, especially in the you know the nutritional world. Yes. So very important all right but that pretty much wraps up the case study for today so which i thought was a good one and a really good example of you know re- what to stay away from and what could potentially be causing it yeah, really good one i i like this one a lot where is she in the process right now you know i need to follow up with her because she hasn't i haven't heard from her since we i gave her the protocol Okay. So finding this, find, you know, this resurfaced, um, this was back in October. So it just resurfaced when I was um, looking for a good case study to do with the leaky gut because I knew it was something that, that we, it was a natural progression from talking about digestion. So um, I intend to reach out to her to see how she's doing. Good. But Good. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know, hopefully we'll have an update as well. So yeah, I'll, I'll let you know once yeah, I get back. I'd, I'd love to do an update on that. All right, um, we don't have any calls. I do. I think that's an awesome case study. I'm looking forward to an update on that. There's so much we could help her with if she sticks with this. So um, we'll look forward to that. Uh, are we doing um, live Q and A today? We are doing a live Q&A today. Um, do you mind if I break to eat a little something beforehand? That, that'd be fine. <laughs> I'm thinking like 2 o'clock. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking 2 o'clock, so that gives me a good amount of time. So 2 o'clock Eastern time, uh, which is what, 11 o'clock your time? 11 Pacific. Sounds perfect. All right. Wonderful. Um, so we will see you at the Q&A, guys. All right. So that is at healthytribe.com. Come on over and join us. Bring lots of questions. Uh, Lauren is live on video uh, talking, and she may go over this case study a little more. Uh, but we're there for you. We're there for questions. So if there are no questions, we wrap it up. So if you have questions, we have answers. We will see you in just about 30 minutes at healthytribe.com. All you have to do is log in. You log in, Lauren will show up right there at the top. I am in the chat room. There's a chat room that goes along with the video and I'm answering questions through chat. So come on over and join us, healthytribe.com. We'll see you then. Uh, Thanks, Lauren, for an awesome case study today. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.